I'm Vicki Lawson. And I'm Sarah Elwood. We're the co-directors of the Relational Poverty Network, which is a collaboration among over 500 scholar activists and educators working on questions of impoverishment in the broadest sense. The network convenes conversations amongst people working in very different places around the globe in order to trouble taken for granted ideas about who is poor and why. And this podcast, titled New Poverty Politics for Changing Times, brings you a series of conversations between poverty scholars, activists, and educators. They think about how to keep questions of poverty and inequality front and center at a time when poverty is not part of the national conversation nearly enough. A foundational premise of the work is that poverty is always produced in relation to privilege and produced through multiple intersecting injustices. It's our hope that these conversations prompt you to think hard about questions of impoverishment and to collaborate with people who are working hard on these issues. Thanks for listening. This is Emma Shaw Crane. I'm here with Professor Devarian L. Baldwin um, for New Poverty Politics for Changing Times, What Emerging Nationalist Populisms Mean for Poverty and Inequality, a project of the Relational Poverty Network. Um, so Professor Baldwin is Paul E. Rather, Distinguished Professor of American Studies at Trinity College in Hartford. Baldwin is the author of Chicago's New Negroes, Modernity, The Great Migration, and Black Urban Life. And he's co-editor of an essay collection, Escape from New York, The New Negro Renaissance Beyond Harlem. Um, so thanks so much for taking time to speak with me today. I'm thrilled to have the chance to talk to you. Um, and so we'll start with these four questions. And then I have a bunch of questions for you that are more specific to your work. Um, so the first of these questions is, what do you see as priority research topics um, on impoverishment at this moment? I think that's something that we'll, we'll definitely return to in this conversation. That our creative industries? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so um, that's been a, a, a big obsession with me in the last 10 years, um, primarily through the lens of universities and hospitals and, uh, and stadiums and uh, uh, casinos. So what happens in, in, in cities that, you know, after, you know per, the cities that are perceived to be abject or, you know, dead cities, if you will, after, you know, the full development of deindustrialization, um, it's become these, these recovery strategies have primarily been organized around uh, creative placemaking and attempts to convert kind of tourism and cultural practices into economies, what, what people are calling um, urban growth machines. And so in the last 20 to 30 years, you've seen this phenomenal and daunting um, increase an investment in uh, tourism economies, um, primarily through what I'm calling or what's been called creative industries. Um, what some have called the rise of the ICE economy, that's information, uh, culture, and education, that some have argued has either taken, replaced, or has become a new face of the older fire economy, fire, insurance, and real estate. I would argue the latter, that um, ICE has not replaced fire, that ICE has become the new face, has become the, these creative industries have become new ways of facilitating capital, and also uh, uh, maximizing uh, wealth from poverty. And something that, that, so the next question that I think we can, and I want to return to some of the topics that you've mentioned there, is who should poverty researchers and teachers be collaborating with? Yeah, um, I have a, lot, a, a nice little thought about that. Um, I think it ranges. I mean, of course, I think it depends on, I'm, I'm very much about situation. Um, you know, what is this, what, what is the issue we're trying to tackle or solve in a particular moment, and therefore, who should be at the table? Um, but in a more broad, in a more broader sense, I think everyone from housing and land rights activists, prison abolitionists, food justice advocates, and again, urban planners, to environmentalists, um, artists, artists, writers, and athletes, um, Black Lives Matter folk, dreamers, 
see, and I think this is related to that question, who do you, what do you see as the priority actions, the most important actions that we should be taking to resist exclusionary trends, and, and in particularly in light of the, of the moment that we're in with our national leadership? Right. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, first of all, just, just you know, le- uh, legal volunteers at immigration and housing court. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, you know, I think this, this concept needs to be, um, I guess, more radicalized or, or offered or pushed to offer more complexity. But I think sanctuary cities is something that's important as an urbanist. Um, any way to reimagine and repurpose the city in a way that's for, for justice, um, potentially, I'm for that. Um, I think we need to recover the older idea of freedom schools. I think that we need to get behind. Uh, we've seen the power of uh, sports boycotts and walkouts. Yeah. Um, in, the, in the case of, you know, the NFL, but even before that, in the case of the University of Missouri, um, we see that radicalizing athletes can shut down whole institutions. I think that we need to really, you, you mentioned that you're doing work in Latin America. I follow, you know, admirably the rise at one point in time of, of um, kind of worker-driven industries, or worker-controlled mm-hmm. labor. Yeah. So I think we definitely need to institute that more here in the U.S., um, I think that we need to um, get behind something that I've seen in my work at university that's been very productive in some ways is um, instituting community benefits agreements. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, something that might seem very mundane and, and simple, but um, I feel like, you know, we, we live in these neighborhoods, but they become primarily just, um, you know, habitats in the worst sense of the word in terms of we just, we're just holding place, but not really inhabiting them. And so I'm, you know, been trying to figure out different ways to engage in um, collective neighborhood walk-ins, walk-throughs walk and teach-ins. Oh, interesting. The, the act of repurposing neighborhoods, taking ownership of neighborhoods, being present publicly in neighborhoods. I think that there's been a, a great absence of that, even amongst activists. That it's, you know, because times are so dire, um, issues or, or actions have been very problem-oriented. But we're not actually inhabiting neighborhoods. And and that's I find that really interesting because I think that that speaks to um, some of your work around focusing on cultural production instead of on yeah. how people are produced as problems in poverty mm-hmm. programming or or sort of problems of government in the city. Can you talk a little a little bit more about what your imagination might be for that for that? frame of inhabiting neighborhoods and doing what I'm assuming would be relationship building with other residents? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, so we we know that, as I mentioned before, what the key terms, what, what's going on. So we're talking about, you know, people are living in significant debt. People are facing evictions and, and forms of displacement. Um, people are, are laboring, you know, um, quietly um, in sometimes two or three jobs without many, you know, many benefits, et cetera. Um, people are looking for different ways to to uh, to nourish themselves, to clothe themselves, and so. Um, but these experiences are many times endured individually. Or at least we think that we're, we're we're alone. And so, just the simple act of you know in, in, inhabiting neighborhoods through, for example, community gardens, but also just through walking through neighborhoods, identifying issues, meeting neighbors. I mean, it's very mundane in one in, in one regard. You know, meeting neighbors, um, picking up trash. Uh, uh, talking to people, uh, you know, old, you know, neighborhood watch programs and um, needle needle exchanges and, um, you know, um, talking to sex workers or um, local merchants and, you know, like you said, relationship building. Um, these are the kind of things that I think become the, the ground for politics. I, 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 in some regards, I feel like politics or activism is seen by many people in a parenthetical way. That's something that I do if I have the time or the privilege or it's something outside of my everyday life. And, and you know, one of the, the, the you know, seemingly uh, most abject ways and ways of understanding life in, kind of cap- in the capitalist present that we see today is kind of lifestyle branding. <laughs> but one thing I think that can be taken away from that, that framework is the idea of lifestyles. You know, so in a very simple way, how can we align our actual lived experience with our greatest ambitions or our most simple needs. Yeah. And so imagining lifestyles can become the ground upon which um, trans- 
transformation can take place, but to imagine lifestyles, I think that we need to engage in collective um, participation in our local neighborhoods and, and walking around and seeing what are shared and distinct experiences and what might be goals um, that we want to achieve that then no longer become about politics, but about the kind of life you want to have. Well, and to me, that speaks so powerfully to your work on the world-making and self-making of Black migrants in progressive-era Chicago, um, and thinking through literal, the things that we literally think of as lifestyle that might show up in, like, a lifestyle magazine, like doing hair, going to the cinema, walking, um, and displaying fashion, sort of the bodily techniques of self-making, how that actually contributed to forms of collective life and radical demands. Um, And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that, um, because I do think that these are some of the things that we are lacking in contemporary um, geographical poverty scholarship. Hmm. Well, I think you said it better than I did, but I could, but let me try. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I mean, so for example, my really good friend, actually we went to graduate school together, he left graduate school to become a food justice activist and chef, Brian Terry. Um, he... I mean, it's exactly what I'm talking about in his life, the life that he lives. He, he's a chef, and he lived, we both lived in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn, and at one point in time in the Bronx. And we saw, you know, there's this, this, this rapid proliferation of bodegas and uh, fast food restaurants and uh, chain grocery stores seizing on, you know, impoverished neighborhoods. And, you know, he also, on the other side, he was a chef, and he saw that so-called, you know, kind of, vegan or healthy lifestyles were seen as a space of privilege or definitely foreign from working poor black and brown communities. And so as a, as a scholar and as a chef, he started doing research into the history of something, you know, like soul food hmm. or, or, you know, um, and he started to see that there were um, legacies of healthy eating within soul food cultures, within uh, Puerto Rican and Dominican uh, food cultures. And so he began to do things like um, institute community gardens, dinners, but at the dinners there would be, um, you know, uh, freedom music and there would be discussions about, you know, uh, food ecosystems. Um, and there also would be discussions about um, the history of the foods and different ways of eating the food collectively, but also this is the lifestyle thing because you were actually at a dinner breaking bread, enjoying yourself, but, but in that process, transforming your existence. Um, he also began to institute um, these walkthroughs with um, youth where they would go to bodegas and think about healthy eating alternatives. Because he said, you know, realistically, these kids are not going to go to Whole Foods. They can't afford it. It's a foreign entity. But the bodegas are in their neighborhoods. So how can we think differently about our existing environment versus um, jump to the final conclusion of transforming a new environment. How can we transform what we already have? And so it's, it's things like that that I think are, are you know, critic, are, are vital. Another example, you know, we, we talk about um, something like um, anti-sagging laws. And, you know, a few years ago, there were these laws where um, in various municipalities where people were going to jail or receiving fines for having their pants sagging. But in, 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 in low-scale in low, in low ways or seas all over the country, you began to see people, um, you know, activating themselves um, around resisting that, you know, around something that seemingly is dressed. Or, you know, um, I, I, I don't know the, all the politics around it, but, you know, something like slut walk, mm-hmm. right? The, the reimagining, the rethinking of your body through uh, apparel and appearance and, 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 and self-fashioning. Um, you know, I think that these things you know, are vital, and, and I think they, they, they're happening all around us, but uh, we're not connecting these actions to poverty studies or anti-poverty studies. Yeah, and I think part of what I find so exciting about this, about those suggestions, are that something that I see with a lot of my undergraduate students is the belief that action will only be available after achieving some kind of professional qualification. Um, And I see this a lot with graduate students too. Like, of course, people might be engaged in union activism or in sort of university-wide campaigns, but there's kind of this like deferral of a political life while one is in the limbo of graduate school or sort of beginning their adult life as as an undergraduate. And I think that this question of how to, of inhabiting our space 
and of aligning self-fashioning, which all of us are engaged in, whether or not we're understanding it as a political um, practice, is, I think, really exciting. I was going to say that, you know, this idea of politics as a deferred, um, you know, achievement, um, I think my project on Chicago in the 1920s and 30s, you know, as you said, um, demonstrates that we're engaging in politics whether we acknowledge it or not. And so the decision-making and the struggles and the debates over clothing styles, over hairstyles, over consumer habits, um, over living design, over, you know, living uh, housing design, all these things, we're engaging in politics. And so for people to see that these are processes that, as I say to my undergraduates, you know, the, the power of, 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 these, of, these, of these mundane, these quotidian practices is, is making them appear to be natural. Yes. And so, you know, I, I hit them with the mantra, decisions are made, decisions are made, and that works for them to say that, you know, I'm making decisions daily, but it becomes a matter of what kind of decisions and how I'm making decisions and, and what resources allow me to make certain decisions and, and, and what uh, a knowledge system give me the capacity to think about these decisions. Um, that's critical, and I think it, it, it allows us to um, connect everyday life and politics in ways that don't make it seem foreign or um, contrived or an out-of-body experience. And related to that, what do you see as the priority keywords in critical poverty studies in this moment? Hmm. Um, I think uh, sustainability, yeah. displacement as compared to gentrification. Yes. And we can talk about that if you want. Um, right to the city, um, philanthropic capitalism. Um, I think uh, human ecology, and, and we definitely talk about that because I, I mean it in a non-traditional way. And um, are the are the terms for me that jump out? Um, I'm also wondering. Um, can, so yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit more about those. Um, can you talk about why displacement instead of gentrification? Yeah, sure. So you know, um, gentrification at one point in time, you know, in the '80s and the early '90s, it had a very particular kind of. Um, in my mind, political meaning mm -hmm. um, about the, tr the transformation of neighborhoods from, you know, working poor, you know, to affluence and excess. Um, but then in the last 10 years, we've seen the re reclamation and gentrification as a, as a good, as, you know, and it's focusing on infrastructure. So it's been defined lately as you know, the rising of land values and upscaling of infrastructure and amenities um, through the influx of a foreign residents. So it's taken a much more kind of seemingly neutral and positive. So who wouldn't want, right, you know, land values to rise? Who wouldn't want better amenities? How could you argue with that? Now, this is the reason why I think that displacement is a, is a better word because look at the other side of that process. Um, you know, it's not that the, the, the kind of the invisible hand of the market is just simply raising values because you're bringing wealth. Um, it's, it's that the infrastructure of these neighborhoods is being transformed to attract capital at the cost of current residents. And I think that that, for me, that simple um, realignment of the concept, of the process, makes gentrification no longer the most precious term um, because it's not focusing on kind of that land values and amenities is focusing on the cost and the people and the terms upon which this new landscape is being created. Yeah, that makes sense. And related to that, can you talk about the use of um, the term human ecology? Because I think that um, there's a lot of fear around using that language because of the racist legacies of the Chicago school. And it sounds like you yeah. are using that in a distinct way. Um, so I'm curious about that. No, I'm glad you asked that. Cause I want to talk about this for a minute. I'm not arguing that we need to revise human ecology. I'm, I'm arguing that we need to we need to address the fact that that term is being revised. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and I'm I'm very interested and curious about this. Um, we we see in the last ten ten years the revival of human. 
as a as a legitimate, both kind of popular and scholarly concept. And as you know, and, and I'm sure many others know, this concept is extremely rooted in uh, racist, sexist, um, um, and, and class-based um, um, understandings. This this idea that we can understand um, city infrastructure and environment as if it was like a plant life ecosystem. And therefore, in this framework, different racial groups or social groups are like different species. And it's not uh, uh, power or decision-making that, as as, as Robert Park said, sifts and sorts groups into the city. Um, these, These groups are sifted and sorted into the city based on their racial temperaments and their tastes. Yes. And so it's extreme, that's an extremely dangerous formulation, but what makes it interesting for me now is that it's being picked up by everyone from sociologists and cartographers to, I would argue that the, the you know, the, the algorithms that govern, um, mon, you know, now mundane programs like Yelp are driven by human ecological approaches. That's so that interesting. It's taste and temperament that that organize and drive um, the organization of neighborhoods and environments. So, I, so I'm saying that we need to we need to engage it as a site of struggle, um, not as a not as something to reclaim. And this kind of relates to a question that I um, have been thinking about since our first email exchange, because of course, as we criticize Park and the Chicago School theorists they were themselves opposed to, say, certain kinds of eugenicist thought. Like, they were liberal reformers. And so, with that in mind, one of the things that we talked about before this interview is that your work is concerned not with virulent nationalist populisms, but with what you called the so-called progressive liberalisms of university ideals and their dangerous consequences for surrounding communities of color. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you think it is so important for us to remain attentive to the violences of liberalism at a moment when public conversations are really concerned with what is framed as sort of the sudden rise of white supremacist populism? Mm, no, it's a great question. Um, yeah, so I guess the reason this this interest for me stemmed out of my historical work, um, particularly around it wasn't even concept based; it was it was it was time period based. I was interested in what I was calling uh, black anti-fascism during the 1930s and 40s. And what this concept meant to attend to was a range of uh, black urban activists in the 30s and 40s who were trying to make sense out of, um, you know, urban urban inequalities like restrictive covenants, um, you know, housing, public housing discrimination, um, labor discrimination, um, at the, but, but at the hands of the state. And um, these are activists in places like Chicago, Los Angeles, Queens, New York. And so they were calling it with the backdrop, not necessarily of Nazi Germany, but of Ethiopia and fascist uh, Spain and Italy, they were calling these um, activities fascist. Hmm. And they were attempting to make sense of um, housing and neighborhood segregation at the hands of the state and um, semi-state actors, housing, um, you know, resident segregation as being like a ghetto. Now today, the use of the term ghetto when applied to black and brown people seems, you know, almost you know, like a given. But in, in the 30s and 40s, um, the term ghetto was almost exclusively used for, Jew, for Jewish Americans yes. and, and Jewish individuals in Europe. Yeah. And so to talk about resident segregation as ghetto formation in the 30s and 40s was extremely radical as a way to think critically and structurally about residential segregation in the backdrop of the international rise of fascism. And so I was talking about these things kind of in isolation, but then it hit me that, wait a minute, this is all going on during the New Deal era. And so I had to contend with the fact that they are not fighting, you know, conservatism or neoconservatism. They're fighting liberalism. And so from that point on, I've been attempting in different ways. I'm probably not theoretically astute enough you know, or, or theoretically overt, overt in my formulation, but in my work, I'm finding that I'm, I've been continually engaging not with neoconservative or, or, or strictly conservative frameworks or, fat, or you know, what we would call fascist frameworks, 
university. Um, one of the main drivers and presumptions that allows the university to function in this way is that higher education is presumed to be a public good, that you are literally disseminating um, what is being understood as a kind of property, which is knowledge. Yes. And you are transferring it to a wider swath of people. And so because of that, um, there are economic um, consequences and arrangements that are organized around that. For example, um, those institutions that are presumed to be offering a public good many times um, are able to achieve tax-exempt status. Yeah. And so I had to, when talking about universities, had to come up with this concept called the public good paradox. Yes. So what this means that is, is precisely, you know, um, higher education or non-profit institution taxes or status is what helps uh, these institutions um, generate significant private profits and influence without, with, you know, without much public discussion and with little benefit to the actual public. Yes. And so it's these kinds of arrangements that allow me to begin to engage and examine the role of liberalism in highlighting and exacerbating gross poverty and inequality. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your work on universities. Um, you write that urban universities and their attendant medical centers, what, you, what we call meds and eds, stand as perhaps the most central and yet profoundly under-theorized social force in today's cities. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you came to this work, how you see this work as um, poverty scholarship, um, and, and why, why you think it's so important that we are attentive to universities as a driving force of urban, you know, so-called urban revitalization. Yeah. So the way I came to the work is that actually I was in Chicago doing historical work. And I um, came out of the library and there was a rally slash protest. Um, and the rally was around this, um, act, this action whereby the University of Chicago, in the name of, this, of black historic preservation, another liberal concept, historic preservation, mm -hmm. um, they purchased... Um, the Checkerboard Lounge, which is in the Brownsville neighborhood to the near north of the High Park neighborhood where the university is located. Yes. They um, purchased Checkerboard Lounge and um, moved it to the High Park neighborhood. Now, as I saw that, after talking to people, I found out, you know, the, the kind of the, the liberal, neoliberal backdrop to the story is that, you know, um, middle to lower middle class African Americans in Chicago because of a, a significant level of, of financial and political divestment, had begun to invest in um, heritage tourism as a way to generate capital and uh, uh, you know uh, resources into their community. And so they had attempted to um, kind of rebrand the Checkerboard Lounge as an anchor institution to power their own attempts at kind of what I would call neoliberal economic revitalization, heritage tourism. Uh, but at the same time, I, I want to be too hard that I get that in the face of extremely limited opportunities and resources, you attempt to repurpose concepts and frameworks to the best of your ability. Yes, yeah. But where we, where we, where we find the limits of this is that they were facing another, you know, heritage tourism behemoth to the South that had greater resources, greater access, greater voice, greater capital to do some of the same things. The University of Chicago, what they, you know, what people have called the 800-pound gargoyle, yeah, due to its, its um, kind of, in, its, its uh, architecture design, its Gothic <laughs> design. Oh, interesting. Um, um, so they were engaging in some of the same kinds of tourism um, because of a longer history, an older history of expunging all retail from their surrounding campus to generate the greatest wealth from land that they had owned in their campus neighborhood through real estate development. Hmm. So, you know, this is, this is going on in the 50s and 60s during urban renewal, and we should acknowledge that the universities were one of the greatest spaces of urban renewal practice projects in the 50s and 60s. Um, but to move forward to the 2000s, you know, you have all over the country, but in this case Chicago, um, universities, urban universities like this that had, you know, expunged all forms of retail and trade for, you know, from their 
local environment to number one exclude nearby neighborhoods of color, residents of color, and number two to uh, attempt to maximize land values based on residential and real residential investment. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're we're left with um, students who were designed not just to go to school in cities, but to engage in an urban lifestyle. Yes, yeah. And so there was there was there was these universities were watching. Uh, faculty and students flee these campus neighborhoods to go elsewhere in the city to spend their dollars. Hmm. And so, in relationship with municipal leaders who were also struggling to attract empty nesters and young professionals to the cities, um, they attempted to repurpose campus neighborhoods into kind of full urban lifestyle um, experiences. So, fully fully wired, blonde wood, glass frontage. Um, museums, museums, lectures, um, the attempts, you know, they, they realized that when, uh, you know, ex-suburbanites imagined urban life, it was, in many regards, they were imagining a campus. That's interesting. And so what happened is that these universities that had expunged all retail and trade and lifestyle were now reorganizing their campus neighborhood into um, university life environments. That's the term that they use. Oh, wow. Right? Um, and, you know, uh, uh, live workplace spaces is what, you know, marketers and advertisers, you know, that we see today, um, live workplace. And so this was going on in the 90s and the early 2000s and we, and we now see at universities the, the end effect of all this. And so as I began to look at this and talk about this, I began to see, well, wow, it's not just about repurposing and restructuring, you know, urban campuses. It's more so that in the face of trying to attract empty nesters, trying to keep the, the uh, working poor at bay, um, universities have become the new factories, the new mm-hmm. institutional and economic engines of these cities. And that, as quiet as it's kept, um, it's universities that have become the largest um, employers, real estate holders, um, um, educational and healthcare providers and policers in major cities where they hadn't been before. Yeah. And so, again, you know, looking at the University of Chicago, um, UPenn, Harvard, Berkeley, Emory, uh, St. Louis University, uh, Yale, uh, Princeton, you know, the list goes on and on, um, we can see these arrangements all around us um, where municipal leaders are basically transferring uh, public goods and resources into the hands of nonprofit institutions like universities and hospitals, allowing them to reorganize neighborhoods into the form and shape of a campus as a means of both attracting, managing, and facilitating capital. And so the reason why this, the way poverty comes in here is that when we think about you know universities as employers, we think about faculty. But what we don't think about is that um, we don't think about um, uh, groundskeepers, um, we don't think about those who work in the cafeterias. We don't think about low-wage staff. And so these are the folks that populate what I'm calling the creative underclass. And um, so at the same time, these urban universities are able to engage in these practices in such a profound way, primarily because they sit amidst uh, black and brown poverty. Yes. So these are these are these are these universities are primarily situated in neighborhoods where people of color, because of a history, race and real estate inequality, um, don't have the political capital. But at the same time, because of the relationship between race and real estate, these the land that they, they occupy is considered to be relatively cheap. Yeah. So these neighborhoods become vital sites for kind of uh, liberal and neoliberal exploitation at the hands of these creative industries. Um, you know, they become captive markets. Um, and at the same time, the, the, the residents that populate these neighborhoods become the uh, prime force of the creative underclass. So it's primarily um, women of color who are, tr- you know, first of all, displaced from campus neighborhoods, um, reside in the periphery, and then come on the campus as low-wage workers. Yeah. Well, and something that I think, um, as we talk about universities, something that I, I mean, I love all of your work, but something that I particularly appreciate is thinking about sort of the conditions for the production of knowledge about race and poverty and thinking about, as you talk about, how 
Chicago was a laboratory for the production of racialized poverty knowledge, you know, starting with the Chicago School, but in many ways it has remained that laboratory. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what it was like to produce work on Chicago, because Chicago, of course, in urban studies is such a paradigmatic city. Um, And even, I think, as we're critical and um, aware of the profound limitations of Chicago School theorists, you are also writing with and alongside much more contemporary scholarship about Chicago. I'm thinking here of the work on the hyper-ghetto um, yep. that focuses on Chicago as an abject problem space where black people are contained, policed, and um, persecuted, and which, of course, all of that is important. But, but I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how your work has been attentive to the geographical context of universities as important in the production of knowledge, something that I think is so often left out, and also sort of how you picked through the proliferation of Chicago poverty scholarship to be able to write a book that in many ways, um, with its focus on what you call sort of the abundance of everyday brilliance, um, writes back to and speaks back to some of that knowledge. Interesting. So sorry, that was a little unwieldy. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, it, it, it's funny because there, there's a relationship between kind of uh, what might be considered my bottom-up and my top-down work on Chicago. Yeah. Um, a, 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 a lot of the kind of archival materials that I gathered from my work on Chicago's and Negroes is the idea of African-American migrants um, turning to um, consumer practices to create spaces of intellectual life and political dissent. Uh, a lot of the resources that came from that were from Chicago School Studies. Yes, yeah. Uh, but but the haunting part of it was that I had to, you know, deploying the, the, the strategies of, of mentors like Andrew Ross and Robin Kelly and Lisa Dugan that went all in NYU at the time I was there, I had to read these texts against these, these archives against the grain. Yes. And so that was a very interesting experience for me in the sense that the, the interpretation of these documents was so shot through with the most kind of dangerous and abject understandings of black people as problems and kind of as sources of cultural disorganization. And so I had to pair these documents with contextual materials that included oral histories and advertisements in the Chicago Defenders of Black Institutional um, Archives. And it became a a very um, kind of productive and generative conversation that in the same way that these Chicago school um, scholars were utilizing black life to produce certain kinds of generalizable knowledge, Mm -hmm. um, I saw black institutions creating a network of knowledge production that spoke back to the very ways in which they were being crafted and formulated within Chicago school work. Yes. And so it was much more of a conversation than a one-way kind of monologue. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, out of that conversation, I realized in the first book I was really speaking much more about kind of the generative and uh, the, what I call the infrastructure of possibility mm-hmm. that black people were able to create in the face of such dire conditions. Um, that was the focus of the first book project. Um, and some work that's come out, out since then on, you know, kind of um, African-American artists as well. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I grew to be interested in the actual kind of um, the, pro- the, the, the thought process and the knowledge production from the top. Yeah. Right? And so I felt like, you know, even when we look at Chicago school or kind of, you know, um, um, dominant institutional knowledge production by universities, we look at the knowledge output, but we don't look enough in terms of the geographical and the intellectual and the personal kind of uh, infrastructure that that produces this knowledge. Yeah. So what I what I mean by that is to what degree is you know we talk about the Chicago School, but there, there still seems to be little conversation about how Chicago and, and black Chicago and the South Side um, produced that that um, anxiousness, that anxiety, that fear of black people, of difference, that produced the, the, the very abstract, generalizable theories and concepts that were created out of that school to 
govern and manage life in cities. If that mm-hmm. makes any sense. No, that makes absolute sense. And this relates... Um, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, w- I want you to finish this because I have another question. <laughs> and so for me, that's kind of what drove me. You know, it's interesting. My first book is kind of on Chicago, you know, Chicago City Growth, which looks at that kind of, um, you know, black everyday life through consumer culture and politics. The second project I'm working on is actually called Land of Darkness, which looks at the, you know, how um, anxieties about racial difference and, and Jim Crow and Americans, especially with Jim Crow segregation, produce the Chicago School of Sociology. Hmm. Yeah. And so that's the, the second project. Um, that's where my, my essay, Black Belt and Cowards, is, is kind of, that was the first piece out of that. Oh, interesting. And I see, I, I see a direct line between those two projects and my project, Universe Cities, um, because it's, you know, as knowledge production moves from the, from the grassroots to the institution and now back out into the um, kind of urban infrastructure, um, I'm tracking, you know, kind of similar processes, but there are consequences in different settings within yeah. the same city. Yeah. Well, and this, this relates a little bit, this segues into a question that I have for you. Um, so one of the things that I have found that I sort of return to again and again in your work, and I think has informed the choices that I've made about the dissertation that I'm just beginning now, um, is the sort of the way in which the figure of the backwards migrant haunts poverty discourse and has done so, I, I think, pretty consistently through at least U.S. history. And so in my work with Ananya Roy and Stuart Schrader on sort of gray area anti-poverty programs in Oakland in the 1960s, but also in my current work, which is ethnographic and so contemporary in Miami and also in Bogota, this idea of um, what you call in the book a naive mass of rural peasants um, and what you also talk about as um, sort of the rural black peasants as leaves being blown to the northern industries unprepared for city living. There, there is this idea of the migrant both as a threat to urban civility and a threat to urban life, but also then as an object of liberal concern, someone who needs to be educated and inculcated into more sophisticated ways of living. And I, can, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how your work engages with and tries to speak back to some of these ideas that are very, very, very present even in contemporary progressive poverty discourse. I mean, we see in so much of the work right now on refugees, um, this liberal reformist desire to educate refugees about how to be in Western cities. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about some of the choices that that you made. And I think this relates to our earlier mention of um, what cultural studies has to offer to poverty scholarship, which is so often dominated by sociological um, inquiry or sort of so-called empirical inquiry. No, I think that's right. I think that within kind of social scientific scholarship, the idea of the migrant is more of a social fact. Mm-hmm. And I think that what happens with or, or the benefit that cultural studies offers is that we understand the migrant as a, well, at least the, the, the kind of proliferation of, of the migrant, you know, capital T, capital M, <laughs> the yeah. migrant, as, as a construct. Yes, yeah. And so what, what work is the notion of the migrant or the immigrant um, doing within the current economy? And so this also, this allows me to think a little bit about something I want to say to you as well, the idea, you know, from, you know, the, the, the nod to Latin American scholars and their notions of dependency theory, um, you know, poverty has historically, and we all know this, has been understood in two dominant ways, as either a structural force beyond our control, or as, this is actually really what's been essential with me, is that it comes from the cultural deficiencies um, made, you know, that encourage poor choices of a certain group. Yes, yeah. And so, but, but, but what I, you know, have come to the firm conclusion, and I think I'm not, I'm, I know I'm not alone, is the degree to which there's a relationship between poverty and wealth. That the notion of poverty, and in, in, in the case of this case, the, the, the ignorant migrant, they become sources of capital production. They produce wealth. Yes. They, these, these concepts stabilize the irrationality of capitalism. Yeah. Right? And so what I mean by that, in the case, to bring it back to the migrant, is that it's not just kind of, you know, in my work on kind of you know, critical race studies, it's not just uh, white or white supremacist logics that craft the migrant as ignorant, it's also kind of black elite and middle class professionals. Yes. They do the same thing. Every, going all the way back to W.B. Du Bois, who I love, this book, Philadelphia Negro, he was obsessed in Philadelphia with the Southern, with the Southern migrant. Yeah. You know, as a threat to kind of um, black urban stabilization. Yeah. And so what I'm saying by this is that 
Chicago, I found very clearly that the, the ability to craft the migrant as ignorant, as culturally and socially deficient, um, became the grounds upon which the necessity for reform economies was made available. Right? So therefore, by me, what, to say a little bit more about that is that if uh, migrants were uh, thoughtful, intelligent, um, self-sustaining, um, a labor, you know, labor knowledgeable, then there would be no need for the reformer class. Yep. Yeah. And and to take this to a broader sense, my notion, not my notion, but the notion of uh, philanthropic capitalism, I think also plays a role here in the idea that, you know, these big name individuals like, you know, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, Buffett, et cetera, you know, they're, they're, they're you know, handing over half of their wealth, billions of dollars, and the, the, the kind of argument is that, you know, through growth and unjust accumulations of wealth, we can actually save, you know, in the, in the case of our conversation, ignorant or, um, you know, uh, abject, the abject poor. Yes, yeah. But what, what, what of course, is not made available or visible is precisely their, you know, their accumulation practices that help make the poor in, come into existence. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then on the other side, the degree to which constructing these individuals as being simply just units of problem solving um, allows for these philanthropic capitalists to turn them into captive markets yeah. for um, things like uh, GM, GMO companies, for vaccination industries, um, for social betterment programs. Um, you know, but the, the very construction of the migrant or of the of the poor becomes a very uh, you know the very way in which we produce new kinds of capitalist markets. Well, and I think one of the gifts that your work has given to me, because I do think that there's a there's an interesting um, tendency, particularly within maybe um, leftist elite intellectual space, to have a real frustration with consumption and with thinking about consumption. And um, I notice even um, now that I'm doing my field work, one of the things that people have said to me about migrants, I work primarily with Central American migrants to a military a militarized suburb of Miami, is that um, bodily practices of adornment or um, consumption patterns are understood to be somehow counter-revolutionary, the, 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 the practices of migrants, and as an example of false consciousness or a failure to live out sort of like the militant peasant vision. I mean, in some ways it's like an updated or not updated um, Marxist vision of a, of a perfect proletarian who will emerge from, from the farm and um, lead the revolution. And so there's a lot of disappointment on the part of radical activists um, who are expecting a more visibly and recognizably militant set of practices from migrants. And I so appreciate in your work this attention to how bodily practices of adornment are what you call sort of part of a long struggle for various forms and spaces of personal agency. And how in so much of our, our, our I think, and I say our like sort of le collective left um, production of knowledge, there is not a space for us to recognize individual desires and lifestyle practices as being part of a collective form of dissent. Um, and so I just, I really, really appreciate that. And I think that speaks to the question of what cultural studies has to offer to poverty scholarship more broadly. Um, Isn't this something, how did, how, did, how did desire become a bad word when it came to the left? Yeah, you know? I know. Um, I mean, but, you know, even when we're advocating or we're pushing forth a political political platform, that's desire. I mean, are we afraid of our own bodies? I mean, I just wonder if it's, if it's a latent form of, um, of racism yes. and sexism. Yeah. You know, that, that's going on here, that the fear of bodies and, and, and desire um, as, as a critical part of political practice and, and, and vision and, and dreaming and, and you know, uh, yeah, I just feel like there, there is some, you know, low-key white supremacy, you know, heteronormativity yeah. <laughs> going on and how we craft these political projects. Yeah. And, um, and it limits what we're doing. I mean, you, it's funny you mentioned kind of Marxist thought because, you know, coming out of, you know, Birmingham School-style cultural American studies at NYU, um, you know, there was there was a not not necessarily by those figures, but also dealing with sociologists at NYU. Yeah, there was a, a very clear Marxist line that talking about culture, talking about desire, was counter revolutionary. Yep. You know, not just in terms of the front line, but theoretically. 
Yeah. And so my whole project was driven out of trying to speak back to that. Yes. You know, so what what swaths of whole what whole swaths of life are made illegible and impossible and uh, you know, with if, if we follow that logic. Yeah. You know, what what whole terrains of political infrastructure and blueprints for, for transformation are no, are not even seen if we adhere to that logic. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, how how do I not then exist in these political imaginations if, if we follow that logic? And I think and, and yeah. so, Oh, no, no, and I think that so much of that is intimately related to things that are understood to be um, like the feminized spheres of personal or intimate yeah. or trivial. Um, and so right. it's interesting that an entire um, sort of practice of anything to do with, with bodily expression, desire, becomes racialized and feminized to the point where it is trivial beyond, being need, beyond the need to theorize it meaningfully. Uh-huh. And of course, the irony is that the um, uh, bodily discipline is the key site of uh, of galvanization by our enemies. Yeah. Yes. You know, whether it be reproductive rights or um, you know, uh, uh, kind of uh, religious conservatism or um, kind of zoning law. You know, all these areas. You know, uh, anti-immigration politics. Um, you know, border border control. All these things are, are obsessed with the body. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and so why why wouldn't that be our prime set of organizing and things to be around? I, I, I don't understand it. Well, and I think something that I have been thinking about since reading your book for the first time a couple years ago is that even if it is unacknowledged, our primary sites of survival are often through bodily practices. Yeah. And, um, right. and that, that there has been... That, that there has been a historical precedent in, I think, everywhere, but particularly in this country, of being able to craft spaces of intimate survival in the face of massive systemic oppression in, in these things. And to erase that is to erase the creativity of generations of people who survived in the face of incredible violence. Right. And I think that the part for me is that when the body is discussed, either on the left or the right, especially when it comes to um, black and brown and female bodies, the presumption that the body, um, and I, I have a philosophy undergraduate degree, this is where my kind of philosophy nerdiness comes out. Um, the idea that you know we are only body subjects, that our body dictates all, so bodily yes. impulse yes. dictates our decision making. I think my work has been a, a attempt to speak back to that, to understand and discuss the body and embodiment as a knowledge project. Yes. this relates to my last question for you, which relates, I think, to the beginning of our conversation, which is, how do you think we should be leveraging our positions within universities, which of course we know to be these often devastating forces within urban spaces, um, to support poor people's movements and to support movements for racial justice? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, on a very, you know, immediate level, we need to support um, labor or collective, labor organizing, collective bargaining. Yeah. With with the, with the working classes on our, on our own campuses. Yeah. So that's number one. We have to, we have to become advocates for um, the redistribution of resource, resource reallocation. Yeah. You know, in terms of things as simple as, like, you know, paper and food. Yeah. Um, we have to be advocates for, um, you, know, uh, commu- you know, just community partnerships. Yeah. So beyond, you know, mentoring and tutoring programs, you know, um, advocating that a certain amount of you know contracts for building structures go to neighbor you know go to surrounding neighborhoods. Um, you know, in my work on universities, uh, people ask, well, are there are there places where the work is where the people are doing good work? And it just so ha- and for a long time, I was, in, I was I had to say it's very difficult. Um, at Columbia, for a moment, there was an attempt to create community benefits agreements where the community would benefit from. Um, the, the wealth and capital that can be generated by university um, revitalization expansion in the, in, the, in the form of jobs, in the form of, you know, land, in the form of um, job training, et cetera. But this still was kind of in a very neoliberal framework. Um, we have this private or, you know, this, this knowledge that's property and we can transfer it to you. Yeah. Um, 
But I just got back from the University of Winnipeg, which is a small, a smallish city community commu- commuters kind of commu- commuter school, mm-hmm. where in fact um, most of the, the students do not live in university housing. Oh, interesting. And, you know, uh, Winnipeg is a city that's kind of considered to be a flyover city. Like, you know, kind of like the Midwest and the U.S. Like, you know, you want to be on the East Coast in Toronto or the West Coast in Vancouver, the hot, hip, you know, kind of, you know, creative cities. Yeah. Like, the actual creative cities. And so because it, it, it doesn't have the kind of cachet of wealth and it has a significant indigenous population. Yeah, it's an indigenous city. Yeah. Um, and so instead of going the route of other universities that we've seen in the U.S., it has built student housing, um, but it does it not necessarily for students. How interesting. It, it has significant, it has earmarked a certain, a certain segment of the, house, of the university housing for indigenous populations, for the working poor, and even for Syrian refugee, refugees, refugees who have been were excluded from the U.S. Wow. So it's done some amazing things with that. Um, it also, um, as a, a satellite campus in on the, in the north end of Winnipeg, that is, which is basically the, in the First Nations community, it has created a, 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 a satellite campus <laughs> um, that does um, indigenous studies, that does um, uh, culinary culinary work, that does kind of labor training. Um, and also another thing that's done is that it, it, for a long time, it was partnering with these, these, these mega food corporations like Aramark. Yeah. Or, 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 um, and so, but they found out that they had these contracts, but the food just wasn't good. Yeah. So I, I just found out that actually two, three students got together and, and they actually were, had been chefs. And they did an independent study with the individual who was running this, this satellite campus in the indigenous community, and they put together a proposal and uh, a, a, a request for proposal to create a um, community-based food company that yeah. would service the university. Hmm. And this has become a reality. It's called Diversity Foods. God, and amazing. they have, um, they actually focus on employing the, the most difficult to be employed. So indigenous um, residents, those who have just, um, who are on parole, the recently incarcerated, uh, 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 single mothers, and they have instituted this food corporation that has replaced Aramark as the primary food provider on the campus. That's amazing. Yeah, and so I guess I'm I'm saying these things, you know, to say that, you know, alternatives are possible. Yeah. Right? For university. There are ways in which we can engage. I'm actually right now part of this organization called Scholars for Social Justice. And they have utilized my um, scholarship on universities and urban development to begin to think about ways of asking, not asking, but making demands for reparations. Oh, reparations. Yeah. Um, so these are some of the things that I think that we can do. I, I'm, you know, not, we're not limited to that. Um, you know, we, we need to, you know, advocate for land land reappropriation. Yeah. You know, for things like community gardens, for um, child care centers. Another thing with these with these residences in the um, in Winnipeg, um, they all have guaranteed child care. Wow. Right. It's so amazing. what they did was they said, okay, what neighborhood are we in, and what are you know, what are the needs of the of, you know we are we are we are residents in this neighborhood. What are the needs of the neighborhood versus what we see a lot in the U.S. and in Europe as well? It's universities kind of reorganizing surrounding neighborhoods to maximize wealth to meet their own needs. Yeah. You know, uh, with some public relations conversation about town-gown relationships, community partnerships, um, a lot of this is PR. Yeah. But a real robust relationship. Um, and having enforceable community benefits agreements. Unlike the Columbia case, they have a community benefits agreement that's enforceable. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it's things like this. I mean, it might seem simple, but they can be transformative. Well, and if they can be done by a state institution that doubtlessly has yeah. a fraction of the endowment of somewhere like NYU, 
then it is, of course, possible for these massively um, wealthy elite universities that claim they don't have the money for it. Well, I mean, what, what, if, what if a university, what if a university like NYU or Princeton or Columbia took a percentage of their endowment and put it in a public housing trust? Yeah, can you imagine? God, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And so these are the kind of things that I'm seeing called for as I'm doing this work all around the country and um, trying to gather, you know, based on the actual advocacy of um, uh, kind of campus area residents, trying to put together, you know, from this collective, um, strategies that can then be disseminated to other communities. Well, that is the perfect hopeful <laughs> note to end on. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for running a little bit over, and thank you so much for taking uh -huh. time to talk to me. It's such a um, it's such an honor for me to finally digitally meet you after reading your work for so many no, years. No, thank you, and, and I really appreciate your your engagement with me and my work. It's really it's really been.